Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Today is Friday, it is the 10th of the 9th. Michael, how have you been? I'm very well, Gary. Thank you very much. How are you? Great. So, Finnefall, at the time we are recording this, Finnefall is, I think, still having its think in, which was it just keeps going. Uh, leaks are happening from inside it, despite the fact everyone had to hand over their phones. So we'll be talking a little bit about Finnefall in this episode, but mostly the report that was finally released into their election performance. In 2020, Martin has been sitting on it for a good while. I've read through most of the report, not the entire thing in detail yet, but the general idea I get from it is that it's not something that should be taken terribly seriously. We have Josepha Madigan and the law and why you can be technically correct, but also just a really bad idea to get involved in that. I suppose we'll start on Josepha Madigan. A minister, Josepha Madigan, decided, I would assume, to put aside the advice of her advisors and get involved in defending the government about the Zapone thing, or more exactly about the um, the Coveney thing and Coveney's statements at the minute. So she went on The Tonight Show the other day, and when it was on it, she said some quite interesting things. She said that um, the Standards in Public Office Commission had said that uh, Simon Coveney and Catherine Zapone were not involved in lobbying. And then she went on to say, well, it would only be lobbying if it was about land or zoning or something like that. Because she's an individual rather than a group. Two points to make here. On the claim that it would only be lobbying if it was related to zoning or land development. That is actually correct. If you look at the lobbying law, if you are an individual and you don't have an organization backing you, or if you have an organization backing you, but they're not paying you, and the, the organization doesn't have paid employees, then it's not considered lobbying. Now, Zapone, Zapone, as a former minister, would have a cooling off period of, I think, a year after she left office. And that might create some issues, depending on when exactly this job was talked about. But on the raw facts of the law there, Josepha Madigan is perfectly correct, which is unsurprising. Josepha Madigan is a fairly highly accredited solicitor. Mm-hmm. But that immediately comes to a different point. Why is it that a, a former minister talking to a current minister who they know through their work is not considered lobbying? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a decent question. But Gary, I remember when a hundred uh, odd years ago when I was in college and I was involved in debates, debating. If you were doing something as sort of a f- in, internal college things, it was a f- just a fun kind of debate. And you're up against a weak team. One of the classic things a weak team would do, they would take the premise of the debate, the proposal, and they would take a, a word in it and they'd go to the dictionary and they'd find not the first or the second or the third, but maybe the fourth dictionary definition of what that word meant. And they'd say, well, that's what this means. And that that's perfectly okay, because that's nobody would have a problem with that. And everybody, it was, it was kind of a sophomoric, I would say, even sort of secondary school kind of way of doing a debate. Yes, well, it can work against a very naive audience or a judge who's never judged a debate. My point is, when people were saying that Catherine Zapone was lobbying for a job, she was lobbying Lee or she was lobbying Coveney or lobbying the government, I never had the impression, and maybe I'm wrong in this, but I never had the impression that by that they meant she had broken SIPO rules regarding communications with the government regarding a position. 
What I understood them to have meant was that she was lobbying them in the sense that she was ringing them up and saying, go on, give us a job. Listen, there's a job coming up. I think I'd, I'd be really good at that. Any chance of a job? I'd really like a job. I'm over in New York. I'd like to get into Biden. This would be give me a good leg in. Can I have a job? Any chance of a job? Lobbying in used in the way that people who speak English as a first language would use the word lobbying, not in some kind of strict legal sense referring to Irish electoral law and practice and the regulations overseen by SIPO. Now, I'd ask you straight off, am I wrong in that? Were people actually talking all the time about SIPO? That wasn't my impression. I think they just simply were talking that she was ringing up and lobbying. And that was insider trading, as it were. That was insider baseball. That was, you know, cronyism. I will open this by pointing out that last week I pointed out that if I had done that, I would have had to log it as lobbying. You're a registered lobbyist. I should have explicitly made the point then, because I was aware it applied, that Sapone is a sole agent and doesn't have that requirement. However, looking politically at this as well, yes, there have been politicians particularly who have um, not accused, but argued that there were um, issues there under the Lobbying Act. Uh, Gary Gannon, if I remember correctly, explicitly said that the conversations should have been um, should have been dealt with under that act. So there was some, but I think you're right. Most of it was colloquial kind of stuff, mostly because people don't know a lot about the Lobbying Act. So why would you make a comment about it? Certainly, when I was listening to conversations and engaging in conversations with you about it, that was my understanding of what we're talking about. I'm aware of the regulations regarding SIPO and being and the uh, the requirements of registered lobbyists or lobby groups, but this never seemed to me to be principally about that. Not that it it begs the question which you have just posed: why doesn't it? And that's an interesting question. But it never seemed to me that the the principal political problem facing the government around this controversy was that there had been infraction of SIPO. Well, you see, the issue now is that if people take if take umbrage at what Madigan said, and it being correct, it does become, why is the law that way? Who put it in place? And then that becomes, oh, Fine Gael put it in place. Yeah. Which is not a road I think you want to go down under. But the interesting thing I thought about it was the statement that Sippo had said, specifically, that there was not lobbying in this case. Now, I heard that, and I immediately went, Sippo is not going to comment on an individual case. It's not going to happen. I have said many negative things about SIPO, but they will not do that. Firstly, they're not stupid enough to do that. They're not going to volunteer to wade out into this bog. I asked Josepha Madigan's office what they were referring to. And I also asked SIPO, had they made any such statement and could they pass me on all the relevant information on this? And uh, SIPO were happy to do so. Josepha Madigan's office pointed me at a story that was in the business post. Now, the headline of this story is Yeah. Zapone was not lobbying when she saw UN Special Envoy role, anti corruption watchdog says. And in it, it details a, a response that they got from a staff member at SIPO. I would suspect it is exactly the same uh, response I got because I was talking to the same staff member. Right. And the response I got, and all of the quotes in this, basically say this is what lobbying is. This is the definition of lobbying. This is who it generally doesn't refer to. At no point, and I'm going to to assume that they got the same thing I did here. Maybe they got something more detailed. 
At no point do they ever specifically say, that was not lobbying. Now, from reading what they say, it's obvious it wouldn't come under the legal heading of lobbying. So it's a question of whether or not that is a fair headline to put on it. When you can infer that from it and you'd be right. But Sippo did not technically come out and say, that's not lobbying. Right. I don't know. I, I think you can argue either way. I wouldn't have used that headline because I think when you phrase it that way, it comes across as if Sippo have commented specifically on these allegations and politically that provides a lot of cover. And then you have a minister, Joseph Madigan, come out and say that. Something which is very politically useful for Fine Gael at the minute, which would have been far more difficult to do if this story had used a different headline. Now, I also asked Sippo explicitly, had they made any statement on this? And Sippo told me, Sippo has made no statement in respect of any particular individual. So Sippo don't think they've made a statement on this. Right. I don't know. Maybe it's a minor thing, but I just don't think the headline is right. And it was immediately used by a Fine Gael minister. And now, in a couple of days, it'll just be, well, Sippo said it was fine. Yes. And no one will even remember that it came from a single newspaper headline. And Sippo themselves have said, no, we haven't. We have not commented. We have explained what the regulations are, but we have made absolutely no no comment as to whether any particular activity fell within it or not. And as unlikely as it would have been for Sippo to enter the fray and make a comment, it seems to me to be almost as unlikely that at this stage they will enter the fray and say, we didn't make a comment. They're not going to get involved. They know what they said. Politicians, anyone who read that and sees the actual Sippo quotes will note the absence of any direct quote that says what the uh, what the business posts say that they said. There is no, shall we say, conjunction between their statement of what the definition of lobbying is and any other name, for example, Catherine Zappone or Simon Coveney. There is simply a, bla- a bold restatement of what the requirement is. Now, absolutely, within that answer, it says things like, Generally, the conversations of individuals are not considered to be covered by the regulation unless it deals with the zoning or development of land. That's a restating of the regulations. I don't think that's Sippo making a comment particularly on that, and I think that's a very different matter. Now, as I said, I I think you can... I may be being overly pedantic here, and you can make an argument that, well, look, if they said it, and under those regulations it's clearly not lobbying, it's fair for us to say... Well, they commented on it and said it wasn't lobbying. But I just don't think that's the same beast. Well, it's certainly not how people will read it post-factum. When you look at, at the headline and you look at what Josefa Madigan is, is saying and backing it up with this, it reads as if Sippo has investigated this matter and found there was no wrongdoing. That's certainly one reading you could give it. If you wanted to backpedal later on, you could say, well, that's not actually what we meant, of course. That may be how you read it. We can't be responsible for how people read it. But that's not really what we said. Or at least if it may be what appears to be what we said, but this is what we said, and that's what that means as well. Yeah, and they w- wouldn't be wrong. No. It was reported that they'd said that in a, you know, prominent, respectable newspaper. So no journalist is going to pull that up because... You know those people. You're really going to make them look like <laughs> jackasses? Or that they may have just written something that was useful politically? You could say that I couldn't possibly comment. Well, I mean, we've had a minister on a major uh, TV show using it. 
So I think we can fairly say it was politically useful. Well, it has been politically useful. How, if it continues to be so is another question. It was quite nicely done by Madigan, actually, because she brought up the Sipper point and then immediately moved on to the land ownership point, where Madigan would know she's solid. Yes. Yeah, And yeah. that is the one that people are immediately going to see and be like, hold on a second, that's not right. Often not knowing themselves that actually Madigan is perfectly correct. And you don't know if that's incidental or if that is a deliberate make the point and then throw something at them. So they don't question that part. They question this part. You could argue that it's actually quite a clever rhetorical way of doing it. Depends how much competence you think Joseph Madigan has. That's a whole other subject. So... The Fina Fall report, Michael, the long-awaited reading of the bones. And by God, Michael, there were a lot of bones after the last election. God, I mean, part of me says, Gary, do we have to? And then I say, yes, well, I know we do actually have to. I did read it. I read it twice. I don't feel like having read it twice. I know any more than I did before I started. In fact, it's one of those funny occasions when you think you might know less. So just before we start on this, I'm just going to put out a small little thing here just for people to know you o'connell of the independent it was tweeting about the current finifal thinking where the party is having you know a frank discussion of this report and michael martin and he tweeted a photo of the plastic bags the finifal tds and senators were asked to put their phones into before the the meeting got underway and that's perfectly fair and reasonable because as a collective finifal senators and tds showed that they can't be trusted with their phones like an unruly teenager. <laughs> it's also normal practice at a thing like this. Even in a corporate thing, when you go away to do think, you you, you put the phones in a bag or a box and you, you take them away. See, some political parties, Michael, in certain meetings have gone a little bit further and use things like noise generators. Yes. But the interesting thing about this bag, now the bag is, re- all the bags were labelled with name on them. And this one is reversed. But unfortunately you can see the outline of the name, Michael. Yeah. And let me just say, I would imagine Senator Jerry Horkin is not terribly happy right now, nor would I imagine the people around the senator are terribly happy with him. Because while it may not have been him that shared the photo, the photo in question definitely has his name on it. Um. Well, get into the it, just the notion of privacy and secrecy and all this. As regards this report, we we won't go into it. Put it this way: you'll know this. Okay, I was asked um, when this thing just was first going out, being sent out. Any chance of getting a hold of a report? And I said, yeah, just give me a minute. And I got onto a few people, and then I got the report fairly quickly. Sent it on to somebody, and I was asked, well. Is this for just general publication or is this for quoting deep cover? And my response, as you know, I think I told you there was, listen, I don't think there's any great secret. I think I don't think there's going to be any great difficulty within it. Uh, after I'd sent that version of the report, I then in the next half hour received three more copies of the report. Yeah. So what we will do is I will put a link to the full report, either directly on this podcast or reverting back to Gripped, because you're going to see a load of uh, media people quoting from this thing over the next while. But we will just give listeners the full document. Because we're good like that, Michael. We believe in giving the public information and seeing what kind of shift Finnefall will spend money on. Oh, we'll give them everything from soup to nuts. So I just want to open with uh, one, one thing here. I think on its own, 
means you should war- walk into this report if you're going to read it on the assumption there's a limited amount of value here and the analysis is not going to be of a high level. That is this. It talks about events which are believed to have damaged the perception of the party. The first, they say, was abstaining on the vote of confidence on the then Minister for Housing, Owen Murphy. And that is, I think, a fair point, because then that came up on the doorsteps and it tied Fianna Fáil to government, particularly housing policy, and to Fine Gael in a general way that perhaps in review was not good. And perhaps, Michael, at the time, some media commentators may have said, was a terrible idea. Indeed. Here's the, the second area where it thinks that the perception was damaged. Now, to be fair to it, it says that this is something they were told. However, in their findings, they later say that it was true. That the, this was the second issue that hurt the perception of the party was Votegate, Michael. Votegate, yes. Now, if you might remember Votegate, Michael, it was a scandal which was uh, sold as a breach of the Constitution, and there was an argument it technically was. It involved the pushing of buttons in the doll by the wrong people. Now, with the permission of the people whose buttons they were pushing, but it was procedurally incorrect, and arguably in a way that breached the Constitution. I have not met a single normal person in this country who gave a shit about it. I will confess, Gary, that when I read that line, and I would consider myself somebody who is more than averagely interested in politics, I couldn't remember immediately what the fuck Votegate was. I had a memory of it, but purely, I think, because of our discussions at the time, going, like, there are inside baseball stories, and there is this. And it kept getting talked about as if it was so damaging, but no one seemed to care. And I, I'm i not sure if there was no polling, or the polling showed that people didn't care, but I extensively talked to people, because I was really curious about whether or not anyone cared about this, given it had none of the characteristics of a story that'll go far. Gary, just be, to, to put the context here, I think maybe we should explain to the listener who they garnered these opinions from, what the basis of this report was. It, like They have certain number of experts who looked at the data that they collated, but it's important to understand, first of all, where the data came from, the polling company, who the polling company was polling in order to get the their sense of what was damaging or what wasn't damaging. This wasn't done, this was not done on the basis of the general population, rather, but this was done on the, on the Fianna Fáil organisation. Yeah, so they, they split it into four key groups. The membership, the local election candidates, the general election candidates, and the directors of elections. Yes. And then they, they had um, basically multiple choice questions on about 10 different areas. And they got, I can't remember right now, was it 2,300 responses, uh, which included another 12, of which 1,200 had additional information attached, which the polling company told them was one of the highest response rates that they'd ever seen in a, in a, in an inquiry or, uh, of this kind, that this was an incredibly high report. So, my point is, this, this is, these are the people that were being asked for their opinion on why they thought there had been problems. So that's that's the constituency, shall we say, that's being polled. Yeah, I must say this, like, I've conducted quite a lot of polling 
I would be familiar with most of the polling companies in Ireland, uh, both the large scale and the boutique. And I had never, this research was carried out by a group called Coin Research, C-O-Y-N-E. I had never heard of them. Now, it is possible in the time since I've last conducted surveys, I'm just not as aware of the area as I was, or I just miss them. But it did immediately cross my mind as to why they would not have this done by, you know, the like of Red Sea. Yeah. Someone like that. I'm not making any point about that. It's just something I, as someone who's conducted a lot of surveying and polling, thought was odd. Yeah, it could have been Red Sea or Behaviour and Attitudes or Amorok or the, the larger groups. Yeah, you would pick if you wanted like a gold standard trustworthy name. And that's not to say anything uh, about coin research because they could be a great group and I've just never heard of them. It's just odd. <clears throat> they may be just actually quite a boutique group of social scientists who specialise in this a certain kind of slightly arcane political research. They may have been a better price. They may have had, you know, they may have had lots of attributes that made them particularly attractive. It's, it's not going to be difficult to be a better price than Red Sea. No. Some of the prices I've been quoted for, for work from them is just incredible. You sort of look at it and you're like, does anyone in Ireland pay for that? Somebody does. Someone probably does. So that, don't expect a lot of the report. I mean, I could do the, the probably expected thing for someone who is involved with Grypt and say it also talks about the harm that the um, not coming out for appeal more strongly did to the party and how I think that's absolute nonsense. And I do think that. But that is probably the least problematic part of the report. And it's possible my own biases are just blinding me a bit in this. I would make the point that a lot of the very big Fianna Fáil proponents of repeal lost their seats. And a lot of the really big proponents of keeping the Eighth Amendment kept theirs. So I don't think you'll very easily do that analysis. It's also the case, Gary, that there's <clears throat> it's perfectly possible that a number of the people that were polled within Fianna Fáil were actually people who supported uh, keeping the, the Eighth Amendment. But after, when the result came out, then I, I'm talking to people say, do you know what, that probably damaged us. They may, not, they may not be saying that that was the incorrect position to take, but they may, have, they may just have felt that there was a perception that this attached to the party and that it was damaging, but that doesn't necessarily mean it was the wrong position to take. But as, as, and the fact that that was their opinion doesn't necessarily, as I say, mean that their, their, their opinion was in any sense accurate or correct. Or, or holds up to an, any kind of analysis of the numbers. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I would make the more general point that this report contains 79 findings and 59 different recommendations. Okay, if we want to be fair, let's try. I would say that the single consistent theme of the recommendations and of the report is one that we would consider to be correct. And that is that the, the Fianna Fáil lacks identity. They point out that, for example, 70% of people who voted for Fianna Fáil said that they did so principally on the basis of the candidate rather than the fact that the candidate was a Fianna Fáil representative and that they have a problem there to try and explain why people are voting for candidates but not voting for the party. And all through the party and the supporters and, the, and all the reports, they, the theme that kept returning was that there is a lack of identity to the party, that there is no strong sense of a unique selling point to the party, that they don't stand out in any one, one way or another. 
about why voters should vote for them as opposed to another thing. And I think that's a fair and accurate observation. That is fair. And I should make the point that overall, while I say you shouldn't be wary of the report and it's of limited use, that's largely because of its analysis and its findings. Where it is actually quite good is in its discussion and revelations as to Finnefall on the ground and in head office during the election. And it struck me, Michael, of the recommendations and findings, an amazing amount of them simply relate to the practicalities of running an election. There's no grand ideological problem here. It kind of just reads like Fianna Fáil has forgotten how to run an election. Yeah, that was kind of shocking to me because the last time I was, well, not really the last time, but the, the times that I've been, in, in recent years that I've been involved in running elections, say European local or um, European and all elections, it's actually not been with Fianna Fáil, but with Fianna Gael. And I remember at the time thinking, God almighty, this is a shit show. Like, it's 2009 European elections. I remember thinking, it's like they had been, they were surprised by the fact that the election was happening this year, even though you can tell every five years, five years in advance to the day when the next election will be. I remember thinking, God, Fianna Fáil will be so much better than this. Well, you know what, Gary, maybe I'm wrong. They, there was a point they made about the appointment of the director of elections or the you know, the the national director of the campaign and the local that this was ha- this happened. National director of elections was appointed on the eve of the general election being called. Yeah, that's really that's not good. Yeah, yeah, that's that's something you have in place. That's the kind of thing you need. To, you you really should be ready for. You should be prepared for, and that's problematic. And there was there was actually one point in made which I thought was quite interesting. There was no overall collective approval by any group of members of the front bench of the party of the final manifesto prior to publication. Yes. You have all these people, they're spokespeople. Presumably they are on top of their brief. Presumably they know more about it than head office does as a general collective. Mm. And if they don't, and their staff aren't involved, that's a bit odd. It's a little bit odd. Either side. It's either they don't know anything about it and that's the problem, or they do know something about it but they're being ignored and that's a problem too. Actually, the, their final recommendation I thought was quite interesting. The, like the 59th recommendation is the party should provide training to new candidates on the basics of campaigning. Yes. Historically, you would have never needed to do that. No, no. It was a, there was an organic process by which the wisdom of campaigning was passed down within the organization generation to generation yeah you got involved you started doing more you built up and by the time you were a candidate being involved in these things you knew what it meant to campaign and to campaign well and you see this a lot in a lot of um in a lot of organizations where they look at organic behaviors that produce positive results and see that they are failing to uh, get those results and assume you can just say, well, we should train people to get those results, not realising that you can't replace that process and get the same results. You might get better than you're doing, but if you really want to actually get those results, you need to reinforce the processes that are producing them. And the problem there for Finnafall is that those systems are fucked. So training may be the best you can do, but it's not going to work as well as... I mean, traditionally, you just did it. 
And I wouldn't say that that's a problem unique to Fianna Fáil in Irish politics. It's not, no. But it's peculiar that it should to Fianna Fáil in a, should be because Fianna Fáil, this is what this is what they were amongst other things very very good at. Did you also notice they talked about the lack of a professional outside group to help them deal with the campaign and the media management and all that? Again, that's not something. I mean, Fianna Fáil would have taken advice from people. I don't know whether maybe at times. I mean, name me a name here. I say Terry Prone would have has somebody would have given advice to lots of groups in Ireland over the years. They might have used Terry. They might have used maybe. Oh, I don't know. What's a bunny car back in the day? They would have used maybe some professionals on certain specific. But generally speaking, they used in-house expertise because they had it. I mean, going back to the days of the likes of. Seamus Brennan, Lord of Mercy on him, Seamus Brennan was only a whippersnapper when he, he, he was in charge. I mean, literally, he was in his mid-twenties when he ran uh, Erskine, uh, Ch- what was it, yeah, Childers presidential campaign. And then he was in charge of the 77 general election, which produced the great landslide after the Tully Mander. So, and like Seamus Brennan is still in, in the, still in the cabinet right in, in, in the nineties. And so you always had, you had expertise within the party. You didn't need, again, I think it's a comment on the, not so much on the change nature of politics, but rather the, the hollowing out of Fianna Fáil organically, that they feel that they are no longer capable of doing these things internally. But maybe that's just that they've been, been slow to adapt and maybe other parties have gone past them because other parties have recognised their failings and their inadequacies earlier in the day and uh, took on the kind of professional outside help that they needed. It's it's an interesting document in that it shows, I think quite clearly, what happens when you hollow out a political party but try and keep the externals in place. The, the So you're seeing this increased focus on top-down structure being imposed on lower-level members because those members are no longer capable of organically organising themselves effectively. But they're also not doing what they're supposed to be doing from the point of view of the headquarters. If you look, one of the, isu- like one of the issues that they refer to a number of times here is the issue of gender and the fact they say it is more difficult for women to be elected at convention than men. I'd be curious to see what basis they have for that other than just the numbers. And when it comes to issues about gender in, shall we say, in the workplace or in activities, I'm always a little bit slow to just simply believe the bald numbers. I'd like to see what's going on behind that. They talk about the fact that the number of candidates that had to be imposed from HQ Obviously, there was a, there there were greater numbers of women than men because they had to hit the thirty percent uh, quota, and the thirty percent quota, by the way, is going to go up in this set to forty percent, and therefore they're going to need more women. They also observe, on the other hand, I don't know if they notice this, that the number of women that were nominated, I think, it was eighteen percent or something, but that uh, elected was thirty thirteen percent. So the the proportion, proportionately, women were less successful as candidates than men were. Um, but they, it just strikes me, Gary, and not that maybe the gender thing is a big issue, but I, it feels like something that they feel that they have to talk about, and they have to say, "Well, this is a real problem. This is this is the core of the issue." When you know what, I suspect that for Fianna Fáil, this isn't actually the real problem, and issues like this. They want more women. They're desperate for young voters. Young voters. They need young voters. They need young candidates. There, there is there is talk in it and of 
Like there's a lot of left wing ideas, but then there's explicit parts about the growth of the left wing and why other parties are growing due to yeah. I don't think that's actually terribly relevant for Fianna Fáil at this point, because I think a lot of the voters Fianna Fáil would have traditionally had on you know, working left kind of backgrounds are not the people they're now trying to get. Do you notice that Michal Martin has been quoted as saying that Fianna Fáil needs to be more progressive? Yeah, that that, that was exactly um, the one I was thinking about. Because one of the recommendations in this is young people must be central in defining our party's identity. And this is after they've been talking about left-wing things. But on this page, they quote from an unnamed external analyst. An unnamed external analyst generally means... This person may or may not exist, but what they said is useful. And the quote is about elderly people and how Finifal has reflected those elderly people. But then it says, that does not mean that they are attracted to Finifal for perceived conservatism, but could be that voting for Finifal is a long-held habit. And those voters also happen to have more conservative values. Now, I can absolutely see that quote being used to argue, sure, they will stick with us regardless of what we do, which is basically what Finnegan Fall has been doing for a couple of years and it hasn't gone well for them. But there's nothing like doubling down. Also, the obsession with the young vote is understood. There's a book written, oh, 90, 40 years ago now by a Canadian political scientist called Carty called Parish Pump and Politics, a very interesting book about the weirdness of Irish politics and the fact that unlike other systems, you couldn't break Irish politics down along geographical lines, demographic lines, it didn't work across class lines. It was this just this very strange kind of politics. And he made the point that in Ireland you had, you, you, in Ireland, as in other countries, but especially in Ireland, you saw a tendency that within a, a significant proportion of people, their first vote would be for the same party as their last vote. And th- that was truer of Fianna Fáil than any other party. So if your first vote was Fianna Fáil, you tended to, you're more likely than other parties to st- keep voting for Fianna Fáil. That was true in 1979. It isn't very less true today, Gary. It's also worth pointing out that young people are much less likely to vote than they were in 1979. It's, it is interesting that part of the reasons they're given for the fall in their own vote is that people are less loyal to parties throughout their lifetime. And then they couple that by saying that we've absolutely got to focus on the young to the extent where they're saying that they've got to prioritise candidates under 30 years of age in the next general election. But Gary, is it not something which is observed throughout the Western world that people get, as they get older, get more conservative? That people who start somewhere on the centre left when they're 18, by the time they hit 35 to 40, have moved to the centre or maybe even to the centre right a little bit. It is a natural progression. And if, you're, if you create yourself as a party of 25-year-olds, which is a group which votes considerably less than, a part, than people of the age of 40, and you're alienating 40-year-olds, but you're, you're, you're getting the 25-year-olds who don't vote, I don't see if that's a great strategy for electoral success. So on that point, that is sort of a a truism. And it is, it's been a while since I've looked at the research in this area, but it was generally true, although it's it's a culturally bound truth. It depends on the country you're in. And in certain situations, it breaks down. 
what I think it is, more than it's a reflection of conservatism, is that traditionally as people have gotten older, they have acquired things like property, they've had children, they've gotten married, and those things increase your psychological desire for stability. You become less risk-averse, or more risk-averse, rather. You have more to lose, basically, when you... And, you know, you want to protect what you have, even if what you have isn't perfect, and so you move more towards the security side of things, where a lot of the more attractive policies for young people are policies of, um, not revolution, but of, of upheaval. The problem I think you're now seeing is that less people are getting married... They're older when they get married. Lots of people are deciding not to have children and people are struggling to find uh, housing, to buy housing or even to rent long term. So I would suspect that you're going to see that breakdown in the West. And that's going to be really interesting because no one has talked about what happens to a society when for a generation or two, you end up with a massive amount of people. Just historically speaking, a massive amount of people relative to what would have gone before who have no family and no children. Well, yeah, Char- I mean, Charles Murray and, and, and Putnam, from very different perspectives in the United States, talk about this. Murray talks about the fact that if you compare his famous sort of metaphorical town in the United States, Fishtown, and if you look at the working classes, say between, I think, say 1960 and, 19, and 2010 or 2015, that in 1960, 84% of people in sort of the blue collar or lower, lower level white collar work are, are married. But when you go down the road to 2015, that has gone from 84% to somewhere around 50%. I mean, there's been a massive cultural shift and that inevitably, middle classes, that doesn't happen. Middle classes stay married. Upper middle classes go from 94% married to something like 87% married. So it's, it's a different thing. But Gary, I wanted to go back briefly just there to the, the, the issue. But rather than get to the, you know, should we go left or should we go right? And it's worth pointing out, again, to strike me, that the external expert makes the point that on Ireland is unusual, that in other places in the in the Western world and in Europe, the left vote is, is, shrink, or is collapsing in Ireland, it's increasing. But he then says... That isn't to say that we can guarantee that that will continue to be the case. But the point I wanted to make was you're talking about the traditional voter that Fianna Fáil historically attracted. And I, used, I said, I quoted Michal Martin saying that Fianna Fáil should be more progressive. There is a distinct divide in the left between those people who are interested in progressive politics and those people who are interested in, shall we say, old fashioned social democratic politics. Progressive politics is increasingly about issues of social mores, of identity, um, the issues that we have debated in, in Ireland in the last number of things like um, gay rights, gay marriage, abortion now, things like gender identity, all these issues, gender balance, all these these are the issues that are very concerning for people who are interested in prog- progressive politics. On the other hand, there is the older, the older fashioned social democratic voter who is interested in pensions, social welfare, social housing, government intervention, but also perhaps holding less progressive, more socially conservative attitudes to ideas of nation, family, marriage, these kinds of things. And I don't see that this direct, 
I don't see any space at all, even if Fianna Fáil wants to, in a sense, continue being some kind of a party of the centre-left, I don't see any space at all for them on the progressive left. And it's, and the voters that they have lost are not voters on the progressive left. They're voters on the, on shall we say, on the old-fashioned left. I mean, I said before, the, the issue with the report is not its findings as a fact. It's its, it's, it's ability to understand them and analyse them. So they're right. There is a lot of hunger for that sort of thing, particularly amongst younger people. Their problem is in assuming that they can actually deal with that effectively. So they're right that there are voters there. They're just not going to vote for you. You notice they have the, they draw a, a, a problem out of the fact that there's a perception that Fianna Fáil is predominantly a rural party, right? And they talk about this as an issue that we can't be a rural party, we must be, we have to be present in Dublin. But then at the same time, they make the observation that in the last couple of elections, Fianna Fáil has done badly in rural Ireland. And actually in the last election went from one seat in Dublin up to seven seats in Dublin, which had to be, which was considered to be a success. Now, if you gain the odd seat here and there in the cities, and, but you, you lose your base, I mean, Look at the results, for example, in that they talk about in Connacht Ulster, where the differential between, say, the result of the local elections where they're getting 30% of the vote in local elections, but they're going down to something, was it under 10% or around 10% in the European elections, which is an absolute disaster. If you hollow out the party there, but also, if we look, I think they're, they're making an assumption of values about some kind of deep chasm gap between the urban voter in Dublin and then the the area around it. And if we look at, and I don't want to get into the substantive issue, but remember the results we saw around the the repealer, uh, the, the referendum on the repealing the 8th. You saw rural boxes in Waterford and West Limerick returning 70%, 72%. The voting was was one of the most remarkable things about the result of the referendum was the degree which, with some exceptions, was fairly similar across the country. There wasn't; it didn't seem to me to throw up some kind of an Ireland where there was this massive difference in politics and in values between Dublin and the rest of the country. I'm not saying there aren't differences, but I don't think that you can that you can construe that there's some kind of a, a massive massive difference, and that one place you can either speak to one place or you can speak to the other. I, I, and I, I think there's a false dichotomy there, and they don't seem to see a co- an incoherence between saying we have a problem being perceived to be a rural party, we must be an urban party, and then saying we're actually we did quite well in Dublin, but we're losing votes in the rural areas. But we don't. But that's not a problem. Are you familiar with the? Uh sapper wharf hypothesis. You have mentioned this to me before. It's a linguistic um, theory. And it's something that changed my mind when I was reading through the document, because there's all this talk of, of right, left, urban, rural. The hypothesis argues that the structure of a language affects how people think and the worldviews that they will find attractive. Yes. And then it, if you take a more hardline view of it, it's not just attractive, but understandable. That they shape yeah. fundamentally how you think about things. When we start talking about, we, we make these hard distinctions, particularly between left and right, and they colour how people conceive of these things. That's part of, I think, the modern problem that as 
you see this realignment of left and right, where a lot of what would have been the old left is now pretty much in the right because of their cultural views. And you're seeing that in reverse in, in other areas. People can't really handle that because they have become blinded to alternatives because of the way they've broken it down into left and right. Yeah. And I kind of do get that feeling as I'm writing this report. There's all this talk of rural and urban and left and right, but not really much analysis of what that actually means. And are these actual, like, what are the differentiating factors here? What are the things that are actually the same? And could this be better analysed using things like likely Fianna Fáil voter? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It's not just this report. It's it's endemic in political science. And it tends to produce really poor quality political science. But it requires a level of awareness to be aware of that like, you're not going to find that in a political science department. I think you're, I think you're making an important point. And you're getting towards an... Uh a very important question. And I'll ask you this question then, because I think this is a really important question for Fianna Fáil as regards this. What is the purpose of this report? Well, I mean, the formal purpose is to determine what Fianna Fáil did wrong. You see, I think there's a, that kind of is a question floating on a, a, on a set of other questions. You might say, well, of course it is, but there you go. What I mean is, what does Fianna Fáil want to do? What does it want to be? Is the purpose of this report to help Fianna Fáil understand what it has to do to get votes? Does Fianna Fáil see itself simply as a brand whose job it is to gain market share? And they don't particularly care what product it is. Maybe they're IBM and they used to make their money in office office equipment, and then they made it in, in, in computers. But that market has gone from them now. So now they're perfectly happy to move into a different market. And if that market involves them selling policies and thinking things and saying things that 20 years ago would have been an anathema to them and it was completely alien to what you might have called core Fianna Fáil values or ideas of Fianna that's fine. They're just a brand. They're a company in the business of getting votes. That's one thing. Or is it, we have certain core values. And what we have to decide is how we explain those values to the electorate, how we communicate those ideas, and how we, are most, how we can most successfully implement those values in a way that we think will be good for the civic health of the nation and the republic. The point I, I would make to that is that at the start we were talking about it's shocking how many of these recommendations are just base technical things. Yeah. Should not require this level of analysis. They should simply be done organically, but they're not. So now they need to try and replicate them through structures that are never going to be as good. But that may be absolutely true, that they've forgotten how to do all those things. They don't have the organizational expertise or ecosystem to build them anymore. But it may also be true that that's the only thing they have to talk about. That they have no actual beliefs to be safeguarded here. That there is nothing there to pin it on. And they talk about how there's a lack of identity. And in many ways, this report is an example of it. Because there is nothing here about the values the Fianna Fáil should hold outside of platitudes about being progressive. Now, there were two recommendations that really struck me when I read the report, Michael. And one, I think, is, is this. Election campaigns must be modern and of our time. 
I thought that was the most ridiculous, platitudinous thing I've seen written down on a piece of paper for a very long time. Like you're talking about how you have no identity and then you come out and in a, when you're trying to analyse what you did wrong and that's the best you can do. Even saying they must showcase our values would be better. The other one, by the way, and this was more just, oh, it's that bad, was they were saying that they should set up a mentorship program for mm. newly, attected, uh, newly elected TDs to assist them in getting established at constituency level. This mentoring group should include people from the constituency and also include people with an outside national view. Now, there are two parts of that I think are important. One, they think they're going to be electing TDs who don't have that level of knowledge, who've never worked in constituency at that level. And two, people with an outside national view, I would say very clearly means people from Fine Fáil head office. And we have seen Fine Fáil over the last, eh, last while putting pressure on TDs to bring in, because TDs have a staff around them of PAs and, and other people, to bring in people who are in line with what head office would like. So it may also be that not only organically has the party basically collapsed and now you need to build all this scaffolding to hold the thing's carcass up so you can weekend and burnies it for as long as you can keep it going, but that kind of reads as if they don't trust their own TDs either. Yeah, but see, I think that's more the point. I, I, I actually don't think that if you look at rural Ireland, and I suspect in Dublin as well, certainly rural, I think the Fianna Fáil TDs that are getting elected are people who have a, a pretty decent competency when it comes to knowing how to be a, a rural Irish TD. I think a hell of a lot of them are still coming from either from families or from connections to families or to people who have already been in the doll and maybe for generations after, before that and know perfectly well how to do it. I think it's far more about the fact that they want to make sure that not that these TDs aren't going around having wrong opinions and thinking wrong thoughts as they get they go around doing their business in their clinics around their constituencies. Now I mean, at, at the heart of it, Gary, it's the fact that it's this is this document ultimately in a very strange way is like an it's a it's a plaintive cry of a party which is having an existential crisis. I mean, you 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 were talking you were talking about the language thing. I mean, to me that just reminded me of the great German philosopher Heidegger, was great existential philosopher, who said that language structures reality, and in the same way as an existential, I think what his question is, an existentialist would ask, well, what what is how what is your meaning? How do you impose meaning on the world? And I don't think this was not a document which suggested to me that at least at the at the top level of Fianna Fáil, that these, there are people who actually have a sense of Fianna Fáil having a world view. One thing I thought was quite interesting was the, the people involved in the committee that ended up producing this report. Because there are some good people. Oh, there are, yeah. yeah. It was, a, it was a fairly heterogeneous group of people as well. I haven't had a chance to have a chat with any of them. Uh, but I very much look forward to doing so. Uh, and having a brief little bit of a chat about what uh, what happened with this report internally. How much pressure were you under? Because Martin sat on this report for a long time. Mm-hmm. And you read it, and on one level you can see why, because it's incredibly negative. And on the other, you can see clear parts where it's been, I would say, 
edited, not by Martin, obviously, but by the final stages of the committee to put Martin in a better light. So things like saying one of their findings is that the national media campaign was focused on the leader, but it's worded as the national media campaign was naturally focused on the leader. Naturally focused on the leader, yes. Things like that. Word choices that seem purely designed to give a little bit of protection to Martin. And it doesn't really go into a great amount of detail on Martin. You say it was largely negative, and maybe that's why he sat on it. I, I know what you mean, but Gary, the, the negative stuff really was stuff that the dogs in the street knew. I mean, there was, there was nothing here that anybody who read it would go, oh, wow, gosh, that's... To me, I don't really see why anybody would sit on this. This is fundamentally to be a non-event. No, I mean, I, I read it and there was a little bit of, this is it? Like, this is what had to be sat on? I mean, like it's Martin. He may have just been dithering. Yeah, yeah. That's perfectly possible. But I, I don't know. It doesn't... I don't think there's anything here that's going to in any way impact positively on Fianna Fáil. I suppose, actually, I should probably explain this point. I did kind of explain it earlier. Because people might be saying, well, sure, all, all of those mentorship programs and things, they sound like good ideas. They're based on good ideas. But this is a problem of organisational uh, analysis and organisational psychology. You constantly see people looking at groups that perform well, picking certain things they do and importing them into their own organisation on the assumption that they will work well. And oftentimes not realising that the thing that the things they have picked are not, they, they are organic growths of groups that work well together and organisations that have healthy internal structures and relationships. And you can take the, the end results and you might see some improvement, but you're never going to be able to replicate them if you can't get the foundational stuff right. And that's not something this report talks about. As I said, it, it looks like Finifal has basically been hollowed out organisationally and they are pretty much just propping the carcass up. And yet at the same time, when you look at the levels of satisfaction... At a local level, most of the, the reporting for the local said that people were, were fairly happy with with the organisation and with the, with the activity at a local level and say at the local elections. And it wasn't, I mean, the local elections were, were, weren't bad for Fianna Fáil. Not to be, not to be unkind to anyone here, Michael, but or large organisations often acclimatise to certain levels of achievement. Yes. Uh, particularly if someone is trying to sell it to them, that this is actually a good thing. So if you're a Fianna Fáil member and you've been told that this is all Fianna Fáil can achieve, you're probably going to be pretty happy that you've achieved it. If, however, you take the old line that every voter is a potential Fianna Fáil voter, you're probably not going to be terribly unhappy with this. And I would suspect a lot of the Fianna Fáil lads have become acclimatised to the Martin era I don't. I. It just. I. And we won't do this. We'll finish up shortly enough. But I. I do want to reiterate something we have talked about several times before, and which is where where the spaces are, in Irish politics, where the where the available voters are that Fianna Fáil might appeal to, and it seemed to me that. Ultimately, this document was saying that the direction for Fianna Fáil needs to go in, it needs to be a, most pro a more progressive party. 
And I don't think that that's a, a particularly strained reading of this document. No, it, it's not. But one thing I would note there is that, yes, it keeps saying about becoming a progressive party and that there are voters there. But at no point does it say anything about how Finnefile could actually differentiate itself from the other political parties who are trying to service that area and frankly are going to be able to do it better because they're ideologically more in that space and they don't have the baggage the Finnefile has. So it's just it's wonderful we should be more progressive, but no explanation of how they can actually do that and get voters. I want to, someone to explain to me why it is they think that they're going to be more successful in the future at attacking the space for of the progressive voter that's going to get the social democratic voter or the labor voter or the people before a profit voter or the Sinn, well some parts of the Sinn Féin voter the, even the Fine Gael voter the labor voter why are they going to get that voter to come over to them when they've been doing progressive politics longer better and they do it more naturally and they do it more convincingly than anybody that Fianna Fáil can do I, and where is the space? It and also, Gary, it's also it's based on this sense. It seems that Ireland is a population of progressive voters, and I'm sorry, there is no evidence for that. You might say, oh, well, in comparison to once upon a time, yeah, fine. In comparison to Ireland, 1961, there are far, far, far more progressive voters in the country than there were, but. Even taking the referendum result for the abortion, 34% voted against repeal. Now, Mark Coleman has been all over social media making, I think, the perfectly reasonable point that if you if you look at both tr traditional voter demographics in general and local elections, and if you strip out the home to vote voting, that at least in a normal voting scenario, that 34% goes up to representing around 40% of the electorate. Secondly, the assumption that everybody who voted for repeal is somebody who falls comfortably into the bracket of a progressive voter doesn't seem to me to bear up to scrutiny at all. It doesn't even seem to me to bear up to scrutiny from the basis of the polling that we have, that people who voted for repeal were even necessarily enthusiastic about a liberal permissive abortion regime in the country. So it's based on, it seems to me, it's like they've taken the Irish Times editorial attitude of the day after the referendum and said, this is the New Ireland. And they've got, oh God, this is the New Ireland. Well, there you go. That's where we are. And it's just completely missed. It's, it, it's not looking at the, the real nitty gritty of the political landscape of Ireland as it actually is. No, and I mean, even if you say they're right, and that's absolutely the direction they should move in, and there are absolutely voters there that they can pick up and that will shore them up. At no point in this document does it ever become anything more than a vague aspiration. There's no recommendations of how to do it. There's no idea of how it can be done. Merely, this is popular. There are voters there. Therefore, we should be there. As opposed to, this is how we can actually get people to vote for us. I'm, at, at the risk of straining the analogy well beyond its capacity, and I'm afraid this probably will, it's again going back to my IBM idea. This is a little bit, a little bit like IBM deciding we're no longer in the business of making computers. We're going to go into the business of making fizzy drinks. And we're going to go after the market which is currently occupied by Fanta, 7-Up, Sprite and Coca-Cola. 
and because there's a huge market there. People love fizzy drinks. We're going to go into that market. I don't know what reason you'd have to say that IBM is going to be successful in going to the market, which is already very well supplied by people who've been doing this very well for a long time and who have generated fairly strong brand loyalties. They're going to have to invent a whole new product and assume that they're going to get people to try it and then to like it and then to stick with it. And I think that's a very, very tenuous notion to base your future on. I would also say this just from the section where they're talking about funding. If it was me, I probably wouldn't have spent 610000 on the European elections. They are expensive elections. They are difficult to do. They involve lots of postering and postering is expensive. Posters are expensive. It's a, it's hard to do a European election on less money than that, Gary. Getting Billy Kelleher and, um, who was it? They put him on ice. Uh, Barry Andrews elected is not worth 610000 Well, it's used to Barry Andrews and Billy Kelleher, I suppose. But other than that, maybe not. If they get they get nothing from it. And yes, there's an expectation that you put massive amounts of money into it. But you don't need to. And that money could be better spent on, you know, the local or general election. Particularly the local election, because if your party is in that much of a shambles, well, you know, you could try put some more money into the locals and see if that helps. There is an argument that you have to you have to at least get one person elected to Europe. Because if you don't, then you're not in the European Parliament and then you're not a member of a grouping. And they're a member of the LDE grouping and there is an opinion that the reason they're in that grouping is because there's lots and lots of money in that grouping which uh, which can be made available for activities. Listen, I think the I think their strategy of the European election is the least of their worries. Anyway, we will be back on Sunday. All the best. Bye bye.